if you'd actually got the last letter, you'd think I would have topped myself by now, but ta-da! I'm still alive and kicking even though I don't really want to be, so fucking congratulations to me, right? Tonight in bed I couldn't get to sleep. I kept thinking about the summer dance and what happened that night. So I drank a glass of milk and I looked through the photos I have of you on my phone, but I still couldn't sleep and I had to get up to pee like four times and I felt like I was choking so I had to keep sitting up and looking at my throat in the mirror with the torch from my phone and everything looks clear but it doesn't feel clear. It feels like something's blocking my throat, like maybe I'm coming down with something, I don't know. I read something in the Bible the other day. No, don't roll your eyes at me. I know what you're thinking, and no, I'm not a Jesus freak or born again or whatever, and I'm not religious like those weirdos in town who knock on everyone's doors on a Sunday even if you're having bacon and eggs. But anyway, some of the stuff I read made me think it kind of made sense, like maybe I've got the devil inside me, and he's testing me to try to make me a homosexual, and this is all just a test, and I think maybe what I've done is evil. It's definitely not right or justifiable, and all those people harping on about being nice to gay people don't sit right with me. It's kind of like they're excusing our behaviour when really what we need is a good clip around the ears. And just for someone to shake it out of us, like literally shake us until our skeletons rattle and the desire to do the wrong thing just falls off of us like cooked meat sliding off the bone. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Western Australian author Holden Shepherd, whose debut YA novel, Invisible Boys, tackles themes of masculinity, sexuality, and identity against the backdrop of a rural Western Australian town where everybody knows everybody. It focuses on three 16-year-old boys, Charlie, a rebellious punk guitarist, Zeke, a shy overachiever, and Hammer, a football prodigy with big dreams and an even bigger ego. All three teens are hiding something from themselves and from those around them, a secret that, if discovered, could change their lives forever. So, Holden, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Max, for having me. My first question, a bit of the obvious one, why did you write Invisible Boys? Well, uh, Invisible Boys is, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, born from the emotional truth of my own life growing up. So, it's fiction, and I've deliberately made it fiction. I deliberately didn't write memoir. So, everything in this book is made up, but it's drawn from... Uh, the experience I had growing up gay in a country town in Western Australia, uh, the trauma that that put me through and the trauma I put myself through in trying to kind of deny that I was gay and try to like fight against it. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to represent that in fiction. And so it's your first novel and it was written over the process of two months, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What was the process of writing it like over that two months? Uh, dude, it was like an exorcism. Yeah. It was like, it was so intense. Um, I had tried and failed so many times, probably for about 10 years, mm. to find a way to talk about uh, everything, all of this grungy stuff that I didn't talk about. I was very, on the surface, I was very geeky and very shy at the time. I'm not really now. But I, I was very um, determined to kind of keep that stuff hidden. But I so wanted to talk about it. And uh, eventually the thing that kind of broke, you know, the bow broke kind of moment um, was when my first novel that I was writing, so I was writing a fantasy novel that's unpublished, 
and it, it failed. I sent it to agents and it wasn't good enough. Mm. And they gave me this feedback and I realized this is not, it actually isn't good enough. And it wasn't just that they were wrong. I was wrong. So I had a, a big moment where I kind of went, I need to write something real from the heart about what hurts. And what hurt the most was the trauma of those teenage years. Um, I, it got to the point where I tried to con- uh, convert myself and fix myself with religion. Uh, and beyond that, then I tried to, well, sorry, I wanted to take my own life. So there was a lot of trauma there. And I was like, I really need to express this. So uh, when I sat down and wrote that, it, it came screaming out of me in uh, two months. And it was basically a case of, um, I, would, I was working at the time, so I'd go to work, I'd come home, I'd jump on my computer and I'd keep writing. I'd have music on really loud. I would just be like writing through the night, but it was just like a really frenzied experience. But um, the longer I wrote, the more I felt like I was kind of draining poison out of my blood. Like it, it, like it made me feel so much better to get all this, all, all this stuff onto the page and outside of me. Mm. And I guess the novel differs from a lot of other Australian gay, young, male-centred books where it's set in a regional town as opposed to a big city. Why did you choose Geraldton? Uh, well, Geraldton's my hometown. Mm. And I, I grew up there and I, I never read any gay books, which, again, probably talks about... That talks to kind of what we read at school, mm. right? But I didn't read any gay books till I was at uni and an adult. And when I could find them, it was... And there were great gay books as well, by the way, Australian ones. There's Holding the Man by Tim, Timothy Conagrave, which is amazing. Um, and Loaded by Christos Chalkis, which is like probably the biggest inspiration, probably the biggest influence yeah. on this book. Um, and a few people have kind of said they can see that. I saw that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, that grunginess and that isolation really came through. Um, but that was set in Melbourne, if I'm remembering correctly. I think it was Melbourne or Sydney. It was a big city anyway. Um, and so was Holding the Man. So... I hadn't seen anything that reflected me and I just wanted to feel like I existed. And it sounds really, I feel like it sounds a bit wanky, but I feel like I wrote myself into existence when I wrote this book. Mm. Like after I wrote it, I became myself. And before I wrote it, I was kind of holding it in. Yeah. So in terms of the book, there's three primary characters. There's Charlie, Zeke and Hammer. Uh, What was it like writing three characters that are on paper quite different from each other? Well, I really, I wanted to reflect parts of myself Mm. and I initially was writing a story when I very first started, it was just a story about Hammer and Hammer was an adult and it was about Hammer in his twenties kind of coming to terms with this stuff or refusing to. And it was too much, like it was too much, there there was the experience of being gay in this town and and having that trauma was too much to put on one character. It was too much for me to live through, Mm. like I barely made it. So it was too much for Hammer. So I was like, I'm actually going to split myself into three and I'm going to make, I'm going to explore three different aspects of this. So um, I gave Zeke the head. So Zeke is the the thinking, like the thinking person. Mm. He's thinking and processing what it means to be gay. Charlie's the heart. So Charlie is, um, he has the felt sense. He's the artist. He's the artist. He falls in love. He's the rebel. Um, He gets his heart broken. Um, and then Hammer is the body and or the penis um, mm. because he's he's all about the pleasure seeking and, yeah. and like that's that's kind of all he can process um, of homosexuality. Like he can't really get his head around the feeling stuff mm. and he can't really get his head around the identity, but he knows how it feels and what, it, what his body wants. Um, so I wrote it in that way to help myself process it, but also to understand all these parts of myself. And personally, I kind of, I probably grew up mostly like a Zeke mm. and... 
as I got older and moved away from home and away from high school and uh, I came into myself and I was a bit of a punk, but I was also a bit of a jock. Like I like going to the gym and I like playing footy and, and that's a part of me. And I love punk and I like playing guitar and that's a part of me. And I like reading and writing and, mm. you know, that's that Zeke part of me. So I wanted to represent all parts of myself and be okay with them all and also kind of show other boys and other people reading this kind of stuff that there are so many different ways to be gay that I don't think any of these boys are stereotypically gay mm. and they're all valid. And so Hammer um, could be seen as that stereotype of the very homophobic person who's secretly in the closet and is using mm. the homophobia as, I guess, an outlet for that. And that's sort of a stereotype that some people in the queer community find a bit harmful. I was wondering what you thought of that, mm. that idea. And if you think, uh, if you had any trouble writing a book, uh, a character rather, that was so kind of overtly homophobic and potentially harmful. Yeah, I've had a few people kind of say, um, like, how do you deal with these characters when they're problematic? And Hammer, I think Hammer's the one everyone has a, a bigger issue with. Mm. Um, and I, I feel compassion for Hammer. Like I was just, I was, I've literally just been talking with my brother about this. He just finished the book. Um, and he was going, no, I get it. I get why Hammer is like this. Because that kid is so scared. And yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. It's awful when someone is like that. I mean, I've had people who've done that. I've, I'm pretty sure I've done that. Mm. I've been somewhat like a hammer at some points in I'm, my life. I'm sure every closeted person has had that kind of You've had to have that time. moment. Um, there is a moment in the book, uh, Zeke actually does it, but where um, Pedro and Jeremy kind of say, mm. we'd be fine with it. And, and, and Zeke goes, no, I couldn't have a gay mate. Yeah. That one, I've just told my mate this the other day, but I was like, that's pretty much lifted from a conversation I had um, with my mates at the time. Yeah. And I knew I had some feelings and I didn't know how to process them. And I was, I was shit scared. And so... Self-protection. Mm. Of course I'm going to say something like that. And I think someone like Hammer, who is not emotionally intelligent and he's in that really blokey bloke world, he's going he's gonna to say stuff that is shit. But I don't, I don't feel like it's my book's role to call that behavior out because some people have asked me that. And I was like, no, I don't think it's my... Mm. If, if someone reads it and goes, oh, I didn't like Hammer... Well, that's your response and that's what you put in your review and that's what you, you know, write a blog post about or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's on you to process. Um, but, but it's not up to me to kind of be didactic and tell people, this is how I want you to take Hammer. Like I put Hammer on the page. If you hate him, that's fine. If you feel compassion for him, that's fine. Maybe you have a mix of both. Well, it's more a comment on the society that we raise, you know, teenage boys and they feel like that's an outlet that they need to go through mm, more than mm, anything. I agree because, because why does he do that? Yeah, like... It, like, I think we should be interrogating that, you know, like, why does Hammer do that? Why is mm. Hammer so overtly homophobic? Because he has to maintain his masculinity. How does he maintain that? Well, the only way is to push himself away from something that's gay, to be push himself away from anything that's female or feminine. And so that kind of dictates his behavior. Mm. And he has no other way of, of proving his manhood, you know? And a, a big part of the book is, you know, the, the teenage characters being homophobic, but then you see that the adults, all of the adults are very homophobic as well and you see there's that connection of where are they getting it from well it's mm. the people who raise them mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. where they're learning this language yeah totally and and this is coded so far back in our yeah. kind of society you know like it's not easy stuff to change and i think it we've come a very long way from where we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or beyond mm. um but i think I think often it's missed maybe in the city, that in the country, because someone, bless, like a teenager, um, kind of said, oh, this book's about growing up gay in the 90s. <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, actually, yeah. actually it wasn't. Um, it was much more recent than that. 
And uh, I think the country can feel very isolated hmm. compared to, I think in the city you have, you know, you can go down to a gay bar and you can find other people who are gay very easily. You can hook up on an app. And in the country, it's much harder to do those kind of things. Hmm. And that leads me to my next question, which was that the book doesn't really shy away from things like gay sex and hookup apps and masturbation and drugs and alcohol abuse and suicide and all those things. Yeah. Was it daunting putting those really realistic uh, parts of, um, of the gay lifestyle in the book? Um, it wasn't daunting for me to, to choose to put it in there. Hmm. I was, I resisted letting anyone read it. So like my family, for instance, yeah, I, I literally, they've been asking me for, I wrote this book two years ago. They've been asking me for two years, like, oh, so we can, can we read your book? And I said, no, <laughs> because I, I didn't want someone to read it. And I didn't want to have that conversation where I went, uh, where someone wanted me to take something out or censor something because they would go, well, people will think that's you. Mm. And thankfully it is fiction, but a lot of this stuff is also versions of stuff that I've done or I've been through. And I think it was important for me to do it. One, because it felt like a, a a releasing of shame. Like I carried a lot of shame. Um, if you look at what Zeke does early on in the book in terms of um, being going on camera with older men, um, that was my kind of sexual awakening when I was a teenager. Mm. Like I was with like loads of guys. And, and I felt huge shame around that. And that's part of why I wanted to take my own life. And for me, writing about it was kind of going, this is not something I, that's, that's not a shameful thing. Mm. That it was a human thing. I was a teenage boy. I was exploring my sexuality, um, like most teenage boys, like, like most teenagers of any, you know, like boy or girl or in between. Um, it's for everyone. Mm. Th- this process happens for all of us. And I don't think it's a shameful thing. I think it's okay. So I wanted to depict it as life is. So there's wanking, there's porn, there's, there's drugs, there's whatever. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's the life I've led. And I don't want to shy away from it and pretend it's not real. So given it's a YA novel, did you face any pushback from potential publishers or editors or anything in terms of the content of the book? Uh, I did I did get, um, I, like we had a few rejections, so it wasn't picked up um, by Fremantle Press originally. It was um, pitched around by my agent and a lot of public, well, everyone rejected it because they were like, we love the writing. It's such an important story. We, you know, it was everyone kind of heaped praise on it and then kind of went, but it's, we can't, we don't know how to market this mm. because probably because of exactly this. Yeah. The content was just pushing the boundaries of what YA should be. Um, we've got to consider the gatekeepers of librarians and schools and parents and teachers, you know? So uh, that I think was a barrier um, when it won the Hungerford award with Fremantle press and that got me the contract with them. I expected them to kind of come to me and say, so we had this first editorial meeting a couple of weeks later and I was waiting for the, you need to cut this back or mm. make it more tame. And that didn't come up. And I kind of went, whoa, 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 what about the sex? Like we, you know, we had this meet, we had this meeting yeah. about the structural edit and I said, what about the sex? And they're like, look, we're okay with it. We're going to lean into it. Um, which I made an innuendo kind of joke about, um, which is very immature. But, uh, but they were like, we're going to lean into this. We think it's important. And I agreed with them. We were on the same page because uh, boys now learn about sex through porn. Yeah. That's it. And there used to be kind of softcore men's magazines and things like that, which have kind of been wiped out, which I, I, I don't know, I'm mixed about because now the only outlet is the hardcore porn mm. and that's all they watch. And which porn's great. I'm like a really sex positive person. So porn is a great thing, but 
if that's the only way you're learning about what sex is. Very harmful. Yeah. yeah do you know what I mean? Like you're not actually going to learn what it's like to have sex with a real person and how that's really different from something that's, that's d- constructed for pleasure. Hmm. So it was important for me to, well, if we're not doing it in magazines and we don't want them just to go through porn, let's write it in a book. Let's represent this in literature. What does it look like when boys have sex with each other? Hmm. That's what I wanted to depict. And I've depicted versions of that in the book. And that was important for me to do. And in term, were you worried about facing any criticism for the level of, of I guess, sex and, and things like that in the book? Uh, yes. I guess in terms of re- from reviewers and, you know, everybody else? Yeah, totally. There's been some reviews. Uh, the reviews have mostly, well, the view, so far, touch wood. Yeah. Everything's been positive. Um, degrees of positive, of course. So some are like, you know, wild five-star raving and some are like, you know, this is a good book, f- you know, four-star, but it's, it's been positive. Mm. Um, some reviews, especially for kind of YA markets, have definitely made a mention specifically of this is fairly graphic and you don't want to have, uh, you know, it is marketed for 14 and up, which I think is right. Uh, that's a, that sounds about right to me. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are reading it who are adults. There's a lot of crossover with this. Um, but 14 to 18 for the youth market sounds correct to me. Younger than 14, I feel is probably too young. Yeah. Uh, like I, if, if I think of a 13 year old reading it, I mean, to be honest, a 13 year old, 14 year old boy reading this, who was kind of sexually at that age, maybe, but I just, uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't believe in censoring stuff, but I, I do think that I don't want someone to come across this stuff when they're not quite ready for it. Mm. And I think once you're 14, you're going through puberty you going through those things, that's probably the time to read this. Yeah. yeah. And so in terms of your writing style, who are some authors that you found particularly influencing? Mm, um, so uh, Chris Oschalkos, of course, yep. um, with Loaded, amazing. Like it just really rocked my world when I read it uh, a few years back. Um, Timothy Conagrave again, that was memoir, but great. Um, I love Brett Easton Ellis, um, which is probably where the grunginess kind of comes mm. from. Um, I'm, less, I'm less cynical than he is though. Definitely. Um, so he's got a really kind of um, nihilistic view of the world and I don't, mm. but I do admire his grunginess and as a person, his willingness to be provocative. Um, so those are kind of influences on mine, uh, on my writing style. Um, I read things like uh, random things as well. Like um, there's a book called No Worries by Bill Condon, which is about um, just like a working class boy in a warehouse in a small town. But I read that a few years ago and I went, this just reminds me of my, you know, job at, you know, the local IGA when mm. I was 14. And um, that it was just very clean writing, very unfettered and very masculine. And I respond to that. I, I, um, I don't think my writing is particularly literary. I don't think it's particularly poetic in its prose, uh, like, like in, its, in its flourishes. Um, I write very cleanly, very plainly and very probably raw. I would say. Yeah. And while you're writing the book, was there any, any other sorts of media that you turned to for inspiration? Um, yes, but they, I mean, it won't sound very, um, intelligent. (laughs) Um, I listen to music a lot Hmm. and, uh, music is a big influence on me as a person. So a lot of punk, a lot of grunge, a lot of alternative rock. Um, Invisible Boys is actually structured in a way that Charlie's chapters are all, um, titles of songs. So oh, the, yeah, it's a little yeah. Easter egg, I guess I put in there. Um, so all of Charlie's chapters are song titles that are on the playlist that he gives to one of the characters. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and they're all kind of that nineties era music because that's what he used to watch with his dad when he was young. Mm. 
and that's that kind of music is what I listen to um, because I think I like I respond to that aesthetic that 90s alternative slash grunge um, aesthetic where you don't really hold back and you don't really care what something looks like um, that's important to me uh, so I, I wanted to put that into literature mm. um, and but yeah in terms of other things I mean this book was already done before I saw it, but Boy Erased, um, I don't know if you've seen the film or read the book um, by Garrard Conley. Amazing. So it's about the um, conversion therapy um, that in America they were doing on gay kids. And Garrard Conley was a kid who is, I think he's actually my age. So he, like, it was very relatable. Um, but I watched this with my, it was my fiance's now my husband, um, earlier this year. And I watched this movie, Boy Erased, in the cinema and watched the whole thing. And then at the very end, and I just watched it and I was like, yeah, okay, this isn't affecting me, I'm fine. <laughs> and then at the very end, I just like tilted sideways in my chair and just fell <laughs> and cried for about 10 minutes because it was what I did to myself. Mm. Um, I, I tried to convert myself with religion when I was young. And so something like seeing someone write about their experience of that just brought all of that back. Um, but that was not that was not an influence on the book. I, I wrote the book before that. Mm. So was it written during or before or after the same-sex marriage plebiscite? Just before. Right. Yeah. Very good backdrop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. And and I was really mad at the time. And So was everybody, yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think it was actually during, now that I think about it. I think it was during the announcement of it. So I, I wrote Invisible Boys in July, August 2017. And at the same, while I was still writing this is when it was announced, I think. And I actually wrote a piece for the Huffington Post at the time and it went viral. It was like a, like it got a lot of attention at the time, mostly positive, um, but it got a heap of trolls as well. Of course. Um, and, you know, people like gay Nazis must burn and just like crazy shit. And uh, it, it was a full on time. And I haven't really thought about that in the context of this, but I think I'm sure in the first draft, it said something about something about we can't get married. And it was really cool when I did the edits because I then had to change it to mm. we can't get married. Or I think I took the reference out altogether um, because the boys actually weren't dealing with that anymore. Whereas in the first draft, they were dealing with the fact that, well, I'll never be able to get married if I'm gay. Um, so that was a cool thing to be able to change. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the same-sex marriage vote was like ridiculously and like weirdly traumatic. And I don't think that was understood. I, I was at Perth Writers Festival this year and someone I'd, I wrote a novella called Poster Boy which was about the same-sex marriage vote. It's literally set against the backdrop of it. So it's very, very explicitly about that. And someone in the audience was like, oh, but don't you think it was good? Like we had a really good, um, you know, discussion as a society and it was a very fair and balanced conversation and yeah. everyone got to say their point of view. And I was like, I said, yeah, look, <laughs> yeah. Um, everyone did get to say what they thought, but I said that, that like, I hear what you're saying. I said, for the actual people who were going through it, people who were in same-sex relationships, that was, it was really hard. And it was really hard. And the day they announced it, me and my husband and our husband were watching it on TV and we both burst into tears because we had just waited through it thinking this will never happen. Like we'd spend our lives going hopefully one day, but it had never happened, you know? And every time it looked like it might get through, it might go up in parliament, it would always get knocked back. And uh, that day it went through was the best feeling. And I think we went to the gym together <laughs> that day and we're like, okay, we're getting ready. like <laughs> Getting into shape for the wedding. Yeah. So in the two years since, or almost two years since the plebiscite, um, what do you think is next for the fight for LGBTQI rights? It's a great question. I mean, there's so many aspects to, I mean, we're a bigger community than um, just being gay or lesbian or bi or whatever. So, I mean, there's, there's stuff going on. And 
you know, I'm going to be honest, I, like, I don't have a lot of knowledge. Like, people ask me a lot, like, oh, so, like, what can we do around this area? And I'm like, well, I know what it like, feels like to be a gay guy. I don't know how it feels to be trans. I don't know how it feels to be intersex. Like, I don't know. Mm. Um, but certainly, we, we've still got a long way to go in terms of attitudinal shift, um, even though we've had a lot of success. Um, I think what I've noticed since the plebiscite is that kind of culturally, people are more interested in our stories. So, like, there were a lot of anthologies and, like, in the literature world, mm. a lot of things came out and have been coming out this last year. You've got Kindred from Walker Books. You've got Growing Up Queer in Australia um, through Black Ink. Um, Griffith Review did um, All Being Equal. There's been quite a few things. And I feel like people are interested in the stories now because before it was very much like, you're gay. Oh, well, let's talk about how you can't get married. And that was kind of our narrative. Mm. And I think since that kind of that block was lifted, we've kind of gone through to the next thing where people are like, oh, so what does it feel like to be gay? I think that's a really positive thing. I know we've still got a way to come, but but I feel like it's getting better. Hmm. And so say there's a teenager listening to this who is feeling similarly invisible as mm. you were or as the characters in the book were or mm. are struggling with their identity and their sexuality. What would you say to them if you could speak to them? If I could speak... So if you're listening right now and that's you, I would say to you, you are okay exactly as you are and you can't change some facets of yourself. And that's okay so don't fight yourself and don't deny it and don't try to get rid of it um if it's too hard to do just do it for an hour so like go down to the beach and tell yourself for a whole hour you're not allowed to beat yourself up for being gay or being confused or or being whatever you are and just be nice to yourself for a whole hour that's what i would i would say to you but the message i really need you to hear is that you are actually okay just as you are nothing's wrong with you you don't need to fix anything and you are going to be accepted and loved by the right people in your life and say there's a parent listening to this who is worried that their child might be dealing with those issues how could the parent bring this up or address this in a way that's not going to i guess overwhelm or freak out their child it's a really good question um there is a scene in the book where zeke's parents do something hideous and they cross a lot of boundaries don't do that. <laughs> um, I think it's important. I've had a few parents who I know in my life kind of thing who've come to me and said, oh, my, you know, my son's been looking at porn or, you know, this and that. I need to talk to him. I was like, look, I was, I was like, maybe ease up on that conversation because he's exploring his sexual identity mm. and he doesn't yet know. So I think it's important to respect the boundaries and give some space. And that's probably drawn from my own boundaries being crossed when I was young. Um, it's important to respect the kids' boundaries. And, and I think in a more general sense, you can make it, make it clear that it's safe for them to be whatever they are. So whether that's in conversation or whether that's talking about other people who might be gay and, and framing it in a positive way or, you know, I saw this on TV the other day, isn't that great? Uh, something that you can frame that, this is okay. So mm. if it's if so if you're going through that, that's fine, um, without actually having to sit down and do the whole, are you gay? Directly address. You know, it. and and especially if the kid's dealing with it in that moment. I mean, if someone had asked me that, I would have said no. Uh, you know, if someone had said when I was sixteen, are you gay? I'd have been like, no, no, not dealing with that. No, goodbye. It's not a conversation I'm ready to have. Mm. I didn't want to be gay. You know, I really didn't, and <laughs> I thought I had some control over that, and I don't. And and it's not really something we have control over. So. Yeah, I would be I would be telling parents to just make it as safe as possible, be as kind as possible. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not a particularly PC kind of person, but I do think it's important to kind of not 
you know, the things you say around your kids, they can take to heart. And if you're kind of slagging off gay people or calling them faggots or whatever, you know, that, that's, that's going to be internalized. So just, I guess, be cautious of, you know, does it, does it need to happen? Do you need to say that um, without telling you what to say, which is probably a contradiction on my part. Thanks so much for joining us today, Holden. Thank you so much for having me, Max. It's been awesome. Invisible Boys is published by Fremantle Press and available now at our website at goodreadingmagazine.com.au or at any good bookshop. Thank you.